Good morning, good Monday morning. Hello, humans of the Twin Cities of Minnesota and of the world. How are you? Ellie Krug here with Ellie 2.0 Radio. I hope that I always make you smile when I say hello, humans. I hope I do. Um, well, welcome to the show. We've got a brand new show. We've got a great show uh, going on. Last week, uh, we had to do um, Best of Ellie because I was out trying to make the world a better place. I was in Colorado at that time. Um, we have a wonderful show. I've got an interview coming up with uh, Chris Farrell, a name you might recognize. Um, he is the host of Conversations on the Creative Economy on Minnesota Public Radio, and he's come out with a brand new book, uh, Purpose and a Paycheck, uh, that he's going to talk about. And let me just tell you, it is a wonderful book. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and so we're going to talk about him and it turns out that Chris Farrell is quite an idealist. Um, so I think I may have alerted him to that. So, And of course, we'll have my C block where I'll talk about my work or at least about how I'm feeling about something. But before we get to that stuff, I want to talk about a group of idealistic students and their idealistic professor who ultimately and very unfortunately paid with their lives – for their idealism. I want to go back to Nazi Germany and um, give you a quick reminder of what that landscape was like. We know that Hitler had been a mere politician for a number of years. Some thought a clown. Many did not take him seriously. We also know that he tapped into underlying resentment um, of, the gen of the German people. And we know that he and his cronies did that brilliantly. So by 1936, the Nazis had solidified control of the country, so much so that any youth organization other than Nazi-controlled youth organizations um, were outlawed. And so youth organizations which were aimed at educating and, and culturalizing young people became very Nazi-oriented. And remember, Nazi was the National Socialist Party for Germany. This created um, millions of students going, you know, as young as kindergarten and all the way through college, many students, millions of students, German students, who became adherents to the Nazi philosophy. Um, and they became inculcated into um, nationalistic thinking. And that's that's from – it was from those ranks that the German army was taken and, and it was from those ranks that they went on to start a war. Um, the indoctrination helped create a powerful German army um, which was – Hitler used to invade Poland in 1939, September of 39 and that of course triggered the beginning of the Second World War. I want to fast forward a little bit to the war raging um, – in 1942 and in 1943 and by now the war was raging on the Eastern Front because Germany had invaded Russia. German soldiers were dying by the hundreds of thousands, not to mention, of course, the millions of Russians that were also dying. As this was happening, a group of students at the University of Munich began to meet and talk about what was happening to their country. Most of those students came from wealthy families um, and one, um, one of those students came from a family where the parents had divorced and the father had remarried a Jewish woman. Uh, the students were led by a brother and sister, uh, Hans Scholl and Sophie Scholl and by a professor of philosophy and musicology at, at Munich University. The professor was named Kurt Huber. Huber had been, had been giving impassioned lectures where he impliedly criticized the Nazis for what they had done to Germany. And that made the students feel that they could go to him and trust him with this idea of resisting the German government. Now, this is 1943, 1942, excuse me, the war is raging. Altogether, there were approximately 25 people, mainly students, and this professor, and some others, who um, 
began banded together. The students were of various religions, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, even a Buddhist. Um, they created a series of pamphlets um, that quoted the Bible and poets and philosophers. Several in the group were medical students who were intermittently taken out of medical school and sent to the Eastern Front, Russia, to treat wounded and dying German soldiers. While there, while on the Eastern Front, these medical students witnessed atrocities, um, including the mass killing of Jews. This further sparked outrage about what had become of Germany, their beloved country. Eventually, the students gelled into an underground resistance group that became known as White Rose. Um, they chose this name and symbol because it was intended to represent purity and innocence in the face of evil. Led by the brothers and sister Hans and Sophie Scholl, the group, the White Rose, got a hold of a portable printing machine and used tin cutouts to create templates for painting graffiti with anti-government slogans. Altogether, between the fall of 1942 and the spring of 1943, White Rose produced six pamphlets. Five of those pamphlets were distributed in various parts of Germany, Munich, Stuttgart, and other cities, and they were distributed by being left in public places like phone booths and in hallways, in schools, and in public buildings. The pamphlets included these kinds of words. Quote, isn't it true that every honest German is ashamed of his government these days? Who among us has any conception of the dimensions of shame that will befall us and our children when one day the veil has fallen from our eyes in the most horrible of crimes, crimes that infinitely outdistance every human measure, reach the light of day, unquote. Here's another one that was in the pamphlet. Since the conquest of Poland, 300,000 Jews have been murdered in this country in the most bestial way. The German people slumber in, on in dull, stupid sleep and encourage the fascist criminals. Each wants to be exonerated of guilt. Each one continues on his way with the most placid, calm conscience. But he cannot be exonerated. He is guilty, guilty, guilty. Imagine those words showing up in a pamphlet. And so <clears throat> all of those, those pamphlets went out and they were distributed, as I said. But ultimately, the students got careless. And in February of 1943, so they'd only been doing this for about five or six months, um, a maintenance man at the University of Munich observed Sophie Scholl tossing pamphlets from the balcony of a building at the University of Munich. This led to the Gestapo arresting Sophie and her brother Hans and led to the arrest of, the, of Professor Christopher Probst. After they were tortured for the names of their conspirators, the Scholl siblings and Professor Probst were tried in a Nazi people's court where they were found guilty of treason. That same day, that same day, they were executed by guillotine. The Nazi government was so afraid of the power of their words, so fearful that they had to be killed immediately. I learned about the White Rose because of a recent Newsweek article about the group's last remaining member, Trotte Lefrenz, upon whom Germany today bestowed its highest honor, the German Order of Merit. Um, she too had been a medical student at the University of Munich um, and um, she had helped distribute the pamphlets and she was ultimately arrested and imprisoned but because the war had progressed, she was rescued by, American, by Allied troops. While I'm guessing that most of you have never heard of the White Rose, the people of today's Germany are well familiar. In fact, in 2003, a German national TV competition um, um, went forward to try and choose the 10 greatest Germans of all times, and they selected Hans and Sophie Scholl in fourth place, ahead of Bach, Willy Brandt, or Albert, even Albert Einstein. Additionally, women's readers of a mass circulation German magazine voted Sophie Scholl as the greatest woman, greatest German woman 
of the 20th century. Think about that. She was, she was in her early 20s when she was murdered by the Nazi regime. Imagine the courage that it took to do what the Scholl siblings and Professor Popes and their counterparts did, speaking truth in the face of evil. This is an example of idealism in its purest, most sacred form. Let me give you something from the last pamphlet, the third, excuse me, the third pamphlet that they wrote. Quote, Why do you allow these men who are in power to rob you step by step, openly and in secret, of one domain of your rights after another, until one day nothing, nothing at all will be left but a mechanical state system presided over by criminals and drunks? Is your spirit already so crushed by abuse that you forget it is your right, or rather, your moral duty, to eliminate this system? Think about those words. You can find them. Go to Wikipedia. All you have to do is Google White Rose. You can read those words over and over again that I just said, and they will remind you of something very important about what we need to do today. Okay, if you like this show, um, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love listening for my listeners. When we come back, it'll be Chris Farrell. Thanks. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Mark your calendars to attend the second annual Powderhorn Shark Tank Small Business Competition for Makers, Hustlers, and Entrepreneurs, Saturday, May 18th at 10 a.m. As one of the Twin Cities' most refreshing and authentic community-centered small business competitions, this event will feature live pitches from 13 finalists who offer a wide range of products and services. Six winners will be chosen by a phenomenal panel of judges and will receive thousands of dollars in cash prizes. Held in the heart of South Minneapolis at the Powderhorn Recreation Center, located at 3400 South 15th Avenue. This is a family-friendly event you don't want to miss. The Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association is the proud host of this event, which is made possible in part by the generous support of several lead sponsors, including U.S. Bank, the Seward Community Co-op, and the Midtown Global Market. Learn more at www.ppna.org. See you all on May 18th. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Hello, fellow AM950 listeners. This is Jason from Nightingale at 26 in Lindale. Come experience our delicious signature dishes and exciting rotation of inventive seasonal fare for my wife and chef, Carrie, and her team. Nightingale is the perfect place to gather for any occasion with our extensive wine, beer, and cocktail selection, along with our dedication to great service. We offer a full menu every day from 4 to 1 a.m., two award-winning daily happy hours, and weekend brunch at 10. More at nightingalempls.com. Tom Hartman here telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all-energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money month after month for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com. And we're back. 
AM 950, LD 2.0 Radio, with me, Ellie Krug. Okay, well, um, the White Rose. Um, I'll come back and talk a little bit about them in the last segment, but, you know, um, people who pay the ultimate price for being idealists. Yes. Well, um, that's not a very good seg- segue into um, our guest for the big interview. I, I'm going to be speaking here in a second with Chris Farrell, um, who many of you may know um, is a has a regular show on Minnesota Public Radio, The Conversations on the Creative Economy. And Chris is also um, a writer, has an online magazine for PBS, uh, for the 50-plus demographic, his um, bi-weekly column is Next Avenue. Chris Farrell, will you welcome – I'm welcoming you to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Good, and thank you for having me. Oh, well, thanks for being on my show. Chris, most importantly, and what I did not say in the intro, is that you are the author of a brand-new book that's come out, Purpose and a Paycheck. Um, and the subtitle for that is Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. And I've read your book, Chris, and it is a great book. So do uh, you, thank you. Will you talk a little bit about your book? And then I'm having you here because you are an idealist. I realized that when I heard you speak a couple of months ago. <laughs> and yeah, I came up to you and I asked you, I said, Chris, will you be on my radio show about idealism? And you looked at me with kind of this smile like, who the heck are you and what is an idealist anyway? And so, so you are, though. So tell us about your book. It's a wonderful book. Well, thank you. And I'll compliment it to be called an idealist. It's much nicer than many of the other things that sometimes I've been called. Um, the reason why I wrote the book is we have an aging population. And this is doesn't just reflect the aging of the baby boom population, you know, that massive generation. It reflects a fundamental shift in the U.S. economy because we're having fewer children and we're living longer. So the aging of the population is a real shift. And just to give you one number that I think sort of encapsulates this change, the Census Bureau predicts in 2035, for the first time in U.S. history, there'll be more people 65 years and over than 18 years and, and younger. Wow. Now, when I say things like that, people get really depressed. And if you think about Washington, D.C., the state capitals, if you you know go into the boardrooms of many companies or organizations and you mention the aging of the population, there's just sort of this collective groan and deep pessimism because the underlying dynamism of the U.S. economy is going to erode. We're just going to have too few young people supporting too many dependent elderly. And what my book is arguing is that this perspective is fundamentally wrong. And it is deeply wrong in that there's an incredible opportunity to seize with the aging of the population, whether we're talking about creativity, productivity, uh, engagement, uh, entrepreneurship, working longer. And the book is a sustained argument about the positive economics of an aging population. There's no question about it. And, and of course, we have that basic stereotype that you get to retirement age 60, 62, 65, and that people are just going to simply retire and do what? You know, and I, well, that's the thing. And I loved, I loved when I heard you talk, you gave the little explanation about the retiree in, in uh, Arizona who, who, you know, has the uh, drink at six o'clock in the evening. Go on and tell the rest of that. That uh, little intro, will you? <laughs> oh, yes. So I was out in, in uh, development outside of Phoenix, and yeah, the guy gets up. He says, here's, here's the thing, Chris. He goes, you had that drink, 6 o'clock in the evening, best drink you ever had. You don't have to worry about you know firing someone or being fired or that meeting that you're not prepared for. Nothing. It's a wonderful drink. Some time passes. You have a drink at 3.30 in the afternoon? It's a little bit disconcerting because no one cares. And he says the more time passes and it's 1.30 in the afternoon and you realize it's time to go back to work. Now, that's I, it was a hysterical story. I love that story. I think it was – I mean we were all laughing. But there's a study out of the RAND Corporation and about 40% of people who retire from a full-time job go back to work within the first two years. And the economists who did the study, they assumed that that was for money. And, you know, money is always a good thing. I'm saying they're not discounting money. But what they found, it's about community. 
you know, work, the workplace is a community. It's about tapping into your skills. We all want to be useful. And so the notion that you reach some arbitrary age, 62, 63, whatever it is, and then you no longer want to tap into your skills, your knowledge, your experience, your judgment, and you just want to play is not attractive to many people. Well, and it isn't attractive whatsoever to a lot of people. I mean, I happen to be one of them. Not that it's all about Ellie Krug, but I just can't imagine sitting around. I mean, you know, not that, you know, that's very stereotypical of what I just said about retirement. But um, so, Chris, um, uh, tell us uh, one of the most uh, striking things that I thought about out of your book were the statistics related to the number of people who are in the 55 to 64 age uh, range who are opening businesses, who are being entrepreneurs, who are going out and starting businesses compared to younger demographics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this really isn't just about going and getting a job. I mean, this is about creating um, jobs for other people. That's right. And so what is really striking, because when you, when you mentioned the word entrepreneurship, we, we all think about Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook or, you know, you know, young people out of Silicon Valley. But a quarter of all new businesses are now being created by, the, as you mentioned, the 55 to 64-year-old age group. And that's up from about 15% back in the 96, 97 period. And, but if you take any time to think about it, it makes sense because they have skill. They have knowledge. And what does an entrepreneur do? An entrepreneur solves a problem. And so they understand how to solve the problems for their customers. And some of it is people get pushed into it. So you lose your job. Right. You're 58 years old. You lose your job. Boy, it is hard to get another job, at least the traditional way. And so one thing that people get pushed into and they start their own business. But what the data seems to show is probably somewhere 70 80% are doing it because they want to do it. And because they have skill, they have knowledge, they have experience. And I think this is one of the most exciting trends. And by the way, part of what feeds to it is, you know, you lose your job when you're 58 years old. Do you really want to try and get yourself through the algorithms and the human resources department? Or you just want to go off and start your own business with maybe with some people that you like? A lot of these businesses are solopreneurs or, you know, two or three partners or employees, oftentimes it's off of a a passion, something that's been a hobby for much of your life. And the advantage of that is, one, you know you like it, but the other thing is you understand that market. You know that market. And when I started to look into this, I thought, well, entrepreneurship, I mean, that's too risky, right? You know, you can't risk your retirement savings to your, you know, ability to start a business. No one's started, no, and by the way, don't risk your retirement savings to your ability to start a business. But these are very low-cost operations. Your home is the office or you join a co-sharing workspace. Very little money is being risked. Time is the big commitment. So you're not risking that much money. You're tapping into your skills. And by the way, I think, Deep inside all Americans is the desire to be their own boss at some point in their life. Well, I don't doubt. I mean, that is absolutely true. Um, I, I mean, in my experience with meeting a lot of different people, and uh, certainly in my case, I mean, I've started three businesses. Chris, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, um, I want to talk more about your book, talk more about what you're finding about our aging but very energetic population. Um, listeners, I've been speaking with Chris Farrell. He's the author of Purpose and a Paycheck, uh, Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. When we come back from our break, we'll talk some more about with Chris, and then we're going to drill in a little bit to Chris Farrell and talk about his idealism. We'll be back in a second. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shambot from Shambot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. We always offer a free exam and x-rays for new patients because we believe you shouldn't have to pay to find out what's wrong with your teeth. Call today. We're open early and late and Saturdays to fit your schedule. As my daughter Rachel says, If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works 
LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com, from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. This is Gregory Rich, founder of Habitation Furnishing and Design and host of Drink in the Style every Sunday at 5 p.m. You know, I'm often asked what kind of furniture Habitation offers. Now, I can go two ways with this. I can say something like, Habitation specializes in warm, modern, raw, industrial, and organic contemporary home furnishings. But what does that mean? It means that we have some really cool stuff, and that is the answer that usually goes over better. But cool doesn't mean crazy. And I'm proud to say that everything we offer at Habitation is functional and comfortable. The type of furniture that will allow you to express yourself but still works every day. So there it is. Habitation Furnishing and Design 4317 Excelsior Boulevard in St. Louis Park. It's the Twin Cities' best furniture and design showroom. LD 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you just saw me doing a lot of seat dancing right there. I love my bumper music. All right. Uh, we've been speaking with Chris Farrell, the author of Papis, Purpose, excuse me, Purpose and a Paycheck, Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. Chris, could you uh, let the audience know where they can find your book? Is it all over the place, hopefully? Well, hopefully it is all over the place. Uh, the easiest, of course, is uh, that bookstore known as Amazon.com. And then hopefully it's at your independent bookstore. That's a little bit mixed. I've walked into some, and it's there. I've walked into others uh, when I've been traveling, and it's not there. But hopefully it is, but definitely you can get it at Amazon.com. Okay, well, that's great. And we've been talking, your book is about really – um, you know, many uh, folks engaging in encore careers, um, which is a wonderful phrase, and about how um, you um, – I you said it was a prolonged uh, and I, th I would say passionate argument, the whole book, about um, thinking differently about people in the second half of their life. Um, and yes. go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say and to, to, to realize that, that people – if you're creative in your 20s, you're going to be creative in your 60s. And yet there's this notion that once you hit some 50s or 60s that you're no longer creative. And that is so fundamentally wrong. And a big part of this book is just if I do nothing else is to convince people of that. Well, and that's that's just great. Uh, and and I um, there's a part of your book that I'd really love for you to read from at the bottom of uh, page 240. Would you mind reading that paragraph um, and over a little bit to the top of 241? I'd like to get the audience so they have an idea really of what the paradigm shift is, is here that you're talking about. Okay, so nevertheless, societal expectations of what a normal second half of life looks like are changing rapidly. It's exciting to see the traditional silos segregating the life course into three distinct stages, school, work, and retirement crumble. 
Age segregation is poisonous to the spirit, while variety nourishes it. With work and the search for purpose intertwined in the modern economy, people should find it increasingly easy to seek out multiple careers in different parts of the economy. Shifts from full-time work to part-time work, self-employment, volunteer, school, and leisure activities will blend more throughout a lifetime. Variety is good for our physical and mental health. Quote, aging and old age has been different in the past, and it will be different for our children and grandchildren, says Columbia University's Ursula Staudinger. Great. Thank you for reading that. I think that that paragraph just simply encapsulates really the entirety of your book. And I love... I love the phrase – well, first of all, I want to thank you for alerting me to the phrase of age segre- segregation. I had not yeah. uh, tumbled to that before, but I think that that really is important for us to understand. But I absolutely love your sentence, quote, age segregation is poisonous to the spirit while variety nourishes it, unquote. That – I mean, Chris, mm. I- isn't this really what life is all about, that, that yeah. we need to – you know, people don't like, you know, many people don't like to be challenged, but when they are challenged, when they're challenged by variety, when they're challenged, you know, by thinking differently or meeting new people, and that's what my work is about, is about human inclusivity, that they walk away saying, thank God that happened to me. Thank God I had that conversation. Thank God I did that, you know, that new experience. I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? It's what it's all about, and it's it's about engagement and just what you're describing, you know, meeting different people, being around, uh, if, if you're an older person, being around younger, younger people and, you know, what they're dealing with and those conversations. I mean, that is good for your mental and physical health. And it keeps you engaged. It keeps you thinking. It keeps you learning new things. And by learning new things, you continue to grow. And so one of the goals I have in the book is to say you can continue to grow in your 60s, your 70s, and your 80s. And one of the things about work and the reason why I emphasize work, life's expensive in the United States. So, you know, having an income coming in is actually a really good thing. And the notion that most of us could save enough money working 30 years to live off of 30, 40 years is unrealistic. So money is is a good thing. But work also keeps us engaged out there. It keeps us meeting new people. It keeps us having different conversations. That's where a lot of the variety of life can be. So let's – I want to talk with you about being an idealist, okay? And, <laughs> you know, and so here's my – you know, my definition of idealist is somebody who's working to seek to change the world, okay? I mean, it's yeah. really pretty basic. I mean, we have, you know, some real models for idealists. I mean, my two are Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy. So – but Chris, what got you on this, okay? I mean, it's not a given that you would pick up the mantle to try and change the conversation about um, age and ageism um, and aging. Um, it's not a given that you would do that. How did you latch on to this and why – I mean, you are very passionate about it. It's very clear. And, and what's fueling that? So aging is a way to get at a larger conversation. And I think over the past 30 years – we have devalued the value of labor. I mean, everyone says they value labor. You know, we, we, had, we admire the working person. But the fact of the matter is the past 30 years, we have devalued the labor. We have devalued a lot of work. And um, I was really shaped after college. I was a merchant seaman for four years working in the engine room of uh, various ships around the world. And what I noticed was, again, how creative and how productive were the workers on the ship but in a lot of our conversation, they're considered unskilled. Hmm. They don't. What, what, what do they have to offer? Right. right. They're not making that much money, and that just always really troubled me. Hmm. And then uh, there's a wonderful book by Studs Terkel called Working, was published yep. in the early 19 mid early mid 1970s. And just read the introduction of that book. He talks about all these interviews of ordinary working people, and he said, you know, everybody needs their daily bread, but they all want something more from the workplace. They want a a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of status, a recognition of their abilities. And I think that is something to strive for. And I think it's something that we've lost in much of our conversation about work today, ordinary work, from the janitor Mm -hmm. uh, to the executive assistant. I mean, wherever 
and we should have those ambitions as opposed to this sort of we worship wealth and then we dismiss a lot of people who don't do the kind of jobs that we think are particularly interesting. Well, and so as you're speaking, I just wrote down one word, Chris, and that word is dignity. That's really what you're talking about. You're talking about providing all humans, regardless of what they do, a degree of dignity um, for what it is their life's lot has led them to do. And we have – and I agree with you. We have lost um, the idea uh, that dignity is important, providing another human with dignity. And for many of us, I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I am a workaholic. There's no question about it. I'm a boomer that, you know, fits into uh, some of the uh, stereotypes. Um, but for me, my work is incredibly important about who I am and, um, and who, what I'm trying to do in, in, in the world. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's really important because this is not a manifesto for, for workaholism, right? But it is – a recognition that, you know, deep inside all of us, we want to be useful. We want to be helpful. We want to be valued. And for most people, where they spend most of their time, where they develop a lot of their skills, where they do their learning is in the workplace. And I had this quote in there from uh, the great philosopher Bertrand Russell. <laughs> and he criticizes philosophers, particularly philosophers of utopias, because they always imagine utopia as fishing or not doing anything. And his, his argument is, why don't they think more about how we can make the workplace a better place to be? Because goes, that's where we use a lot of our creativity. That's where we're useful. And I think that's what we need to embrace is thinking about how can we make the workplace not only more fruitful in terms of the incomes that we get from it, but also where our skills and our creativity uh, is acknowledged and allowed to flourish no matter what the job is that we're doing. So, you, I mean, you go around the country talking about uh, this, and, and I'm just wondering what kind of pushback, if any, have you gotten from people? I mean, I've got a lot of pushback. So one pushback is uh, – there's a very much a zero-sum view of working. So if you have more people, 60, 65 and older working, that means there's less opportunity for young people. Mm. And yet when you look at the data, uh, if, if, if the 65-plus have job opportunities, young people have job opportunities. I mean, we're all in this sort of same boat together. And, um, you know, you can just look at the, uh, the rise of, I mean, women have always worked, but the rise of women going into the paid workforce and having careers, that simply added the pie grew right. bigger. Right. It was not a zero, zero sum game. Um, the other thing at pushback is people are actually, you know, they, there is sort of a deep prejudice that if you're low wage, that means you're low skill. And wage doesn't tell you anything nope. about skill. Nope. And you can be low wage and high skill. And in fact, uh, many of the skills uh, are incredibly valuable, intangible skills if you think about home health care aides who are paid pretty much the minimum wage around the, right. around the country. And yet you're dealing with – to say that that's low skill is a fundamental mistake. And so um, you do get kind of a pushback. In, and then there's this final one, which is um, a belief that, yeah, this is okay if you're a white-collar worker. But if you're a blue-collar worker, you know, it's wrong. And yet my feeling is it's not about whether you're white-collar or blue-collar. It's your level of skill. I highlight in the book machinists. Machinists are artists. Oh, and absolutely. They're creative. Yep. And I highlight these people, you know, they're in their eighties and they're trying to teach the younger generation. And I have to tell you, at this um at this place I was at Pittsburgh, which is the seventy, eighty year olds were uh instructors in uh in an apprenticeship program, I have to tell you the American dream was alive and well there because every one of those instructors was saying, you know, what I want to do is pass on my knowledge so these young people can get a job. They can have a partner, they can have a family, and they can own their own yep. home. And you walked out of there and you go, yes. Well, and what you just also just talked about is a transcending American value. That is that our, our kids will do better than we are, um, that, yeah. our, that our kids will 
will benefit, but we can't get there unless the elders, okay, back, not maybe a really great phrase, but unless they're valued for what advice they can give for how they can lead. And, and they have confidence, um, where a lot of younger people lack, uh, lack confidence, right? I mean, they just, younger yeah. people just, I mean, they might want to work hard and all that stuff. But one of the things I notice when I mentor younger people is they might have the skills, but they don't have the confidence. And if you don't have the confidence, I, I don't care how skilled you are. It's not going to work. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that is, is, is judgment. And one of the things that you do gain over time with the passage of time is judgment. Also, to use an old-fashioned word, wisdom. <laughs> an old-fashioned. Well, Chris, I could talk with you all day. And... Um, and I really appreciate you being on LE 2.0 Radio. So uh, thank you for being on the show, and, um, and, and, and thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been really fun. All right. Well, listeners, we've been talking with Chris Farrell, the author of Purpose and a Paycheck, Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. You can uh, find the book on Amazon and at many of your local bookstores. Um, when we come back, I will do my C-block, um, talk a little bit about um, some unifying themes. I'll be back in a second. Thanks. With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years. Celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. The Downtown or Woodfire Grill in St. Paul is the perfect choice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Offering daily fresh seafood specials, fire-roasted meats, exquisite pizza, and half-price bottles of wine on Mondays and Tuesdays, except on Excel Energy event nights. Once you experience their cozy fireside dining, extensive wine list and bar, you'll be back for more. Gift certificates and private dining room for parties available. Located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. My first Toyota and the vehicle which made me fall in love with Toyotas was the RAV4. Now, Toyota is just teasing me as they have an all-new, fully redesigned RAV4. It's gorgeous. A distinct exterior that pops and a refined interior which has everything you want and room to move. And the big news is the RAV4 now comes in a hybrid version. Remember, every new Toyota comes with Toyota Care. Two years of free maintenance. Test drive the new RAV4 today at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Life after military service is different. Many veterans find transitioning difficult, feeling lost and uncertain about the future. These feelings don't take away from a veteran's strength, courage, or sense of duty. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, the power of one person, one connection, one act of compassion can make a difference. For free 24-7 confidential support, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Chris Farrell, what a pro. Wonderful, wonderful interview. 
I have read his book, Purpose in a Paycheck. I highly recommend that book. Um, available on Amazon and all those other places. Thank you again, Chris, for being on my show. Now we're on the C block. And you know, this is uh, where I, I try to talk with you. Um, not at you. I, I don't like anyone who talks at people. Um, ordinarily, I talk about my work and how I'm trying to change the world. Um, I need to preface my comments here by saying, remember, please, that I'm a unifier, not a divider. There are other folks um, who are cogently dealing with the division and the dividing. For that reason, I usually on this show steer clear of politics. Um, I do. I, I don't want this show to be about we against them. I, I don't want that because I don't believe in that. I believe in us only. But I'm going to veer a little bit into the political arena. Um, now, recently, Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi made what I consider to be among the most startling and scary statements that I've ever heard an elected official say. She made an impassioned plea for all Americans to understand that a critical thing about our current political picture is this, is that unless the Democrats win big in 2020, I mean win with a huge margin, there is a risk that President Trump won't accept the results of the election and that he would instead call it a little illegitimate and seek to remain in office. In other words, if the margin is slim, he's going to find a reason to call the election a fraud and to stay in office. Um, Speaker Pelosi also feared that if that happened, Republican leaders, many Republican leaders would enable Trump's illegal, there's no other word about it, and unconstitutional power grab. Of all the things that have been thrown out in the last three years, um, Speaker Pelosi's warning has shaken me the most. I mean, this country has always prided itself on the idea of peaceful transition of power. It's always prided itself on the idea that our elections will be respected. Um, and I cannot imagine what America would look like if President Trump declared the 2020 election fraudulent. Frankly, as I researched the white rose that I reported on in the first segment of this show, Speaker Pelosi's warning bounced around at the back of my head. If the 2020 election goes the wrong way, either due to vote count in favor of Trump or because he declares it fraudulent, um, because of slim margin, what will America look like in 2021? Will the nationalists be emboldened? Will we have a society where only, where only one party line will be legal, as it was the case in Nazi Germany in 1936? You may wonder about that, but the nationalists are actually getting their practice in now. As many of you know, I'm transgender. That accounts for this very deep and masculine voice. Um, and I just want you to know that the nationalists are really getting their practice on transgender humans, transgender Americans right now. We have been targeted by the nationalists, first with the troop and service member ban. Wholesale just wiped us out of the military. Then with taking away school protections, protections for LGBTQ, but, but in particular for transgender students. And now, most recently, uh, the Trump administration within the last two weeks has announced that it's seeking to eliminate health care protections for transgender individuals, which um, if that happens, it will enable insurers to declare that tr being transgender just simply being transgender is a pre-existing condition, which in turn would allow health insurers to reject you for health insurance coverage. At age 62, I'm really very sorry to report that I'm fearful of losing my health care because the American nationalists, the 
nationalists consider me other and not worthy. Certainly nowhere close to being equal. Transgender people are being practiced upon by the nationalists right now. They're also practicing with foreign-born persons. They're sharpening their skill set for the day when they'll feel complete freedom to put into place something more dreadful, something more horrible. I, You know, my goal here is not to scare you. I just actually want to energize your idealism to make sure that 2020 turns out in a way that all of America is protected and that we continue to stand for what we've always stood for, which is decency and recognition of the value of all humans, the right of all humans to the pursuit of liberty and justice and, and peacefulness, um, just as the White Rose students had believed should have been true for Germany. Thank you for listening to that. My heart is heavy, as you can tell. All right. Well, listen, um, you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. I need to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Brending Electrolysis. Contact Bev over in St. Paul. Let her know that I've recommended you. She does incredibly great work. I also want to thank my producer, Brett Johnson, the best producer in the whole wide world. Brett, you do such great work. Thank you for always having my back. And you, my listeners, I'm thrilled um, that you tuned in. Um, remember, you can podcast this at any time. You can go to Apple iTunes. Uh, you can go all over the place and find. All you have to do is Google Ellie 2.0 Radio and you can get it listed and put on your favorite podcast list. Um, please visit my website at elliekrug.com and, um, or email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from my listeners. And most of all, go and have a really great week. Be good to other humans. Be kind. And they will be kind back to you talk to you next week. Thanks so very much. Bye-bye.